We are back in Zephaniah this morning. Zephaniah chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 4 and, and reading through the end of the chapter. So hear God's word for us this morning. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the land of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before this word. It is, you know, it's of a different character than, say, Galatians or um, one of the Gospels. But it is your word, and it is good. And so open our eyes to see the wonderful things from this word. Fill me this morning with your spirit. Empower me with strength. to proclaim your words, words of truth, words of comfort and grace. Lord, would you do this work for us and in us, for your glory and for our good and our great joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So have you ever gone up to a place, you know, maybe it was a restaurant, that you were recommended and as you approached it, what you thought was, wow, what a dump. This place looks about as inviting, as, as uninviting as you could ever imagine. Or perhaps it was a house that your realtor suggested, and when you drove up, you thought, oh my goodness, this place is hideous. What, what is presenting itself to the world, you wonder, there's no way these people will ever sell this house. 
But yet on the inside, the food in the restaurant was some of the most amazing fare you've ever tasted. And when you walked through the doors of the house, you thought, oh my, this place is amazing. You know, the reality is sometimes things, they aren't quite as they appear on the surface. What is most important isn't always the most readily apparent in life. And the truth that is often the most life-giving is also not always the most evidently seen as we read. And I believe that's very true of our text this morning. The most glaring aspect of this text, what shines forth is judgment. It's the devastation of pagan nations. That's what really jumps off the page and probably does throughout most of this book and and really most of the minor prophets. But the truth that isn't discerned as rapidly is the one that I want us to see the most clearly this morning because it is the one that is most encouraging and hope-producing, and I believe it's the one that's most significant for us. And so I intend to show that this morning. I want us to look at three things, three ideas. What will happen? Why it will happen? And then why what happens is good news. So what will happen? why it will happen, and why what happens is good news. And I pray that you and I will walk away heartened by these truths, encouraged to examine our own lives, that we would long for holiness, for conformity to Christ, because we certainly do see judgment for those who live in a manner not consistent with God's truth. But also, I want us to simply be comforted in the certainty of who God is and who we are in relation to Him as believers. So, let's first look at what will happen. Now, remember, one of the major themes of this book is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This is a a day when the Lord works to restore creation to how it is supposed to be. And and there can be these periodic, historic days that that offer a glimpse of the, the ultimate day. Now, I believe here... Zephaniah is directing our hearts most clearly to that more ultimate day, to the great day of the Lord when the Lord returns and sets all things right. The language that is used in the section is is pretty all-encompassing. Geographically, it moves from the west in Philistia to the east with Moab and Ammon, to the south to Cush, which is probably Ethiopia and Egypt, and finally to the north and Assyria. And that is there, it's designed to imply a worldwide scope of this destruction and judgment. But beyond that, just listen to some of the language. Okay, verse 4, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. What are the words that stick out? They're deserted, desolation, driven out, and uprooted. That's language of pretty massive destruction, isn't it? Then there's verse 5. Woe to you! I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Verse 9. Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. Nettles, none of us like nettles. Salt pits, there's, there's, there's no chance of any kind of growth of vegetation. 
Then down in verse 14, in regard to Nineveh, herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. It's the picture of that cedar work is the picture of pride and wealth, and it's laid bare. And there's an owl, which is not a city dweller, (laughs) hooting in the window. It's not hard to pick up on the tenor of this text of desolation, destruction, and decimation, complete loss. The animals are going to be running free throughout the city, which have become pasture lands, and the the objects of this judgment, of this desolation, are the enemies of God's people, the enemies of God. You know, first there's Philistia a long-time foe of the people of God, the Philistines. The ruin is so swift in Philistia, and the one who brings it is so superior that the people of Ashdod are driven out at noon. Now, that that language is not there to to mark a time. Oh, by noon, everybody was gone. What it's there to say is that the the army that came in is so superior, the, the one who inflicted this judgment doesn't even have to worry about cover of darkness. They don't care because there is no resisting what's going to happen. They're gone in the the brightest time of day. They have no chance. Then there's Moab and Ammon. Well, these folks were blood relatives of Israel, descended from Lot in a not-so-great relationship. And there's a long history of animosity between them and the people of God. So when the prophet writes from the mouth of the Lord in verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the railings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Well, the list is really long as to what he has heard. Consider this. Consider how Moab's king, Balak, sought to hire Balaam to curse Israel as they came out fairly helpless out of Egypt in Numbers 22. Or that, um, you know, Ammon consistently pursued just this whole shaming of Israel. Nahash was the Ammonite Ammonite king, and he ignored every every possibility of concession from the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And pressing on, he, he sought to humiliate the people of God. He wouldn't have nothing less than this pleasure of plucking out every one of their right eyeballs. And his son and successor pursued the same tradition. David sent messengers by compa- uh, of compassion to him, and what did he do? He shaved off half of their beards and bared their butts. Tobiah the Ammonite found absolute pleasure in mocking Nehemiah's wall building. It was to him uh, this flimsiness that even a fox could knock over. And on and on and on, the Ammonites and the Moabites mocked the people of God. But you know what? It did not go unnoticed. And therefore, Moab and Ammon will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
destroyed by the holy wrath of God. Their gods shall be famished. The destruction will be so full and complete upon them that there will be nothing left to harvest in order to sacrifice, nor will there be people left to harvest anything that might be left in order to sacrifice to the gods. So the gods of these people are going to starve in the process. And then we could get into it, but we're not going to. Then Cush is slain by the sword. That's all it really says. It's just very quick. They're gone. And Assyria becomes a lair for wild beasts. It's just ruins. You see, the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment will fall on the rebellious. That's what's going to happen. But also, as part of this, God's faithful remnant will be restored. And that second part is the language that I don't want us to miss in the midst of this judgment. And that leads us to why this will happen. We've already caught a little bit of a glimpse. Hopefully, we've picked up on some of that, but I want us to look at it a bit more. Now, when we think about why this all occurs, there's one overarching reason. God. That's, that's the overarching reason of why this occurs, because who God is. It's because He is holy, and He's opposed to sin, to pride and arrogance, and, and He is sovereign. What He decrees is going to be done, and not even the strongest of the strong can resist His will. And then also, He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. So, He's holy, He's sovereign, and He's a covenantal God. So, first, He's holy. He's opposed to human pride and arrogance, to, to anything that damages and harms the Imago Dei, the image of God in us. Psalm 31, 23, it was a memory verse that popped up on my app this week. It says, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. He preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And we certainly see the, the prominence of this attitude of pride in our text, verse 10. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to the same thing. And then look further down at verse 15. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. Is that not utterly arrogant? Calvin comments on this, and, and he warns us all because how much do we see this arrogance and pride, this I don't need God kind of attitude in the world today? and perhaps even in your own heart when you're honest. He writes, But let us remember that in this city is presented to us an example which belongs in common to all nations, that God cannot endure the presumption of men when inflated by their own greatness and power. They do not think themselves to be men nor humble themselves in a way suitable to the condition of men, but forget themselves. As though, as though they could exalt themselves above the heavens. Contrast that with Isaiah 45, 22, where the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. There's no other. 
Or Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Folks, man is not the exalted and self-sufficient one. God is. He is the holy and sovereign God who declares the end from the beginning. His counsel shall stand. Now that word sovereign or sovereignty, we use it a lot. And I thought a little bit of a definition might help us here this morning. This comes from A.W. Pink. Sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy. He's the most high Lord of heaven and earth subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases. None can thwart Him. None can hinder Him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact as well as in name, that He is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of His own will. And so this sovereign God working out His infinitely holy, perfectly good and kind and immeasurably compassionate and gracious will is working at all times. He is not an aloof God. He is not unaware of what is going on with His people. He is involved. And we see this involvement start, in, and in verse 5 it says, the word of the Lord is against you. Now, that's a word of woe. Not like W-H-O-H, but W-O-E. It's a word of doom, of terror. Spurgeon put it well. He said, those who have the word of the Lord against them have an enemy to fear more dreadful than the most fearful convulsion of nature. So imagine standing in Key West and a Cat 5 hurricane is rolling through, and you're just standing on a pole. It's much more fearful than that, to have the word of the Lord against you. See, God's word is the agent of history. What He says, what He has determined will come to pass. There is no thwarting the word of the Lord. So He's holy, He's sovereign, but then He's also a covenantal God. And there's that language of the covenant. Now, now, we're people who normally do not think in a covenantal perspective because we live in a very individualistic America. I'll do it. You just leave me alone. You know, I, I'd rather be out in the middle of nowhere with no, nobody close to me for about 20, 30 miles, and that might be too close. We are very individualistic, but this language here matters. Look again at verse 8, where the Lord heard the taunts against. And it says, what, what does it say? Who did He hear the taunts against? My people. Verse 9, the remnant of my people 
shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. And then in verse 10, where they are called the people of the Lord of hosts. All of that is communal language. It's language that God says, you are my people. It's the language of relationship of covenant. Turn to Exodus 6, if you would. We're going to read a little bit here in Exodus 6. Okay, Exodus 6, verses 2 through 8. It says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established, what? My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. You hear some of the same language, don't you? And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Reminds me of the great, really the great covenantal promise where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. See, God's relationship with the people, one that He initiated, okay, we weren't asking for it. He initiated this relationship. One of the things that it does is in a sense, this relationship, this covenantal relationship governs His actions. He's the Lord and creator of all things, and yet, because of this covenant, he is mindful of his people. He preserves a remnant. He preserves a people faithful to him who seek him in humility. God sees their pain, and he will restore their fortunes. And he does it not because they or we are any better than anyone else, but because he set his love upon us, and he made a covenant with us. And they are His, and we are His, and He will keep that covenant. And throughout history, the people of God have been recipients of both blessing and cursing for for their obedience or disobedience to the covenant. But ultimately, ultimately, the people of God will receive blessing, the blessing of being with Him, of the fulfillment of the covenant. You know, the pagan world, the pagan world is simply devastated without hope. They are without hope. They have no hope and are without God in the world. But for the believer, though devastation and difficult times do happen and they come, there is always hope of restoration and of resurrection. You know, a significant part of what this text is telling us, and I believe one commentator put it really well. He said, The word of the Lord is the central determinative factor in the course of history. The people, of the Lord are the central concern that determines all His actions. The whole course of history is for their final welfare and their secure inheriting of His promises. 
Do you hear that? The course of history is working for the secure inheriting of the promises by the people of God. So this is really good news. It's the truth that makes this text not the dreaded announcement of judgment that at first it seems to be, but actually a beautiful word of comfort for the people of God. We need this word in a world that is by nature opposed to us, opposed to God and His people. There are those who who mock and taunt and deride the people of God because of who we are and how we seek to live in line with His holiness and His ways how we seek to live like our Lord in humility and grace. But you know, justice will come. They will be judged. And another thing is it's not our place to seek vengeance. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Rather, our place is to live humbly and meekly in the care and sight of the Lord, trusting that we will inherit the earth because He will keep His promise. See, in our relationship of grace with the Lord, we have security. After the Lord says that He hears the taunts of the Moabites and the Ammonites, He states in verse 9, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Right there is an oath, and He identifies. He Himself takes the oath to enact judgment and to restore And he identifies himself with his people, the chosen people of God, the the, the God of Israel, and and that is the church today. And he guarantees these action with that oath. He says, as I live. And so the being with no beginning and no ending has made this promise, and he is utterly capable of fulfilling it. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He is absolutely omnipotent. And sometimes that's hard to, to grasp, and it reminds me of a story in 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6, Elisha is a prophet, and the king of Syria is not really happy with him because Elisha keeps telling the king of Israel even the things that the king of Syria is saying in secret. So the king of Syria comes around and surrounds the city where Elisha is. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 6 of 2 Kings, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He's freaked out. And Elisha said, Do not be afraid. Oh, okay. <laughs> For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full, full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God, open our eyes that we could see how much you are for us. And how those who are, he who is with us is greater than he who is in the world. Open our eyes to see that. Because we see so much of everything else. We are bombarded day after day after day with the taunts and mockings. And that the church is just full of a bunch of buffoons. Open our eyes that we would see. 
There's so much for us. And not only, though, are His people secure. Because it's one thing to be safe. It's another thing to be cared for. The Lord hears. None of our pain escapes His notice. He's mindful. That, just that phrase, the Lord is mindful of His people. I mean, consider that for a moment. The Lord, creator of all things, is mindful of you, His child. That should floor us. And He has ultimately entered into our pain. We see that so well in the incarnation, don't we? For the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, took on flesh, and He is our great and sympathetic high priest who went to the cross ultimately to deal with our pain and our suffering and our sin and rose and was declared to be the Son of God in power, and the promise is fulfilled. There we are reassured completely and clearly that the Lord will restore our fortunes. I'm sure you've had times of doubt in your life, and I know I have. And there's one thing that reorients me. It's the cross and the resurrection. There's an empty tomb, and His promise is sure. We can rest in that. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one, just just part of it here. What's your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes on and says, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Folks, the loving, caring, covenant-keeping, and sovereign God, He's for you and He's in control. Charles Spurgeon again wrote, there is no attribute more comforting to His children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. So here's good news. In all our pain and suffering, whether because of the fall and the sin and and, and brokenness of the world and of our own hearts, or because we are being mocked and taunted by the proud of this world for holding fast to our Lord, and, and our enemies are even triumphing now, God's justice is going to be done. And that is a comfort. But also hear this. And this is where I think we, we so need to hear it all. But God is attentive to our needs, to our cares, and our worries, and our anxieties. The church of God, the people of God, are dear to Him. So this is comfort. God does not forget His people, and we can rest in that. We can rest in it knowing that the cross and resurrection are the cornerstone of that truth because we often feel beaten down. 
We feel like the outside of that hole-in-the-wall restaurant too often. But things are not always as they seem, folks. God is working for our good and for His glory. He is holy and sovereign, and those who trust in Him, His people, are His, and He will care for them. He will care for you. So just in closing, let this lead us in two directions. First, because it it just goes with the whole flow of the book of Zephaniah, there is an implicit call to repentance here. To repent and turn away from our wicked hearts. Because the unrepentant will experience judgment. And so our call is to humbly seek the Lord and His forgiveness. But second is the call to rest to rest in Him. Let us be a people keenly aware of His undeserved favor toward us. And may we hold fast to Him with all our strength, knowing that He Himself is holding His people fast. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for this word and ask that you would work it in us. And I want to pray a prayer that John Calvin put in his commentary that I thought was just beautiful. He wrote, Grant, Almighty God, that as you you have been pleased to consecrate us a peculiar people to yourself, that we may be mindful of such an invaluable favor and devote ourselves wholly to you, and so labor to cultivate true sincerity as to bear the marks of your people and of your holy church. And as we are so polluted by so many of the defilements of our own flesh and of this world, grant that your Holy Spirit may cleanse us more and more every day until you bring us at length to that perfection to which you invite us by the voice of your gospel, that we may also enjoy that blessed glory which has been provided for us by the blood of your only begotten Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.